How do you reconcile the dark and painful contradictory histories within your own family? On one side of Marcus Ferrer's family, his Jewish mother escaped Hitler's Germany. On the other side of his family, Marcus's warm, jovial uncle worked for the Nazis. These complexities wove the golden thread in Marcus's career as a Reuters correspondent and then as author of books about conflict-torn Europe during the mid-20th century. Marcus Ferrer joins me here on Creative Conversations to talk about how the many strands of his complex European heritage inspired his writing. Welcome to Creative Conversations, Bold Creativity, Smart Action. The Tiger Spirit podcast exploring what happens when creativity and action flow together. I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. My guest today is Marcus Ferrer. His father is British and his mother is a refugee from Nazi Germany. He was a Reuters journalist during the Cold War and the sole Western correspondent in East Berlin during the 1960s. He has written a number of books about Europe in the aftermath of World War II and a history of great leaders who fought for freedom. Marcus is also chair of the Dresden Trust, a charity dedicated to healing the wounds of war. He is currently working on a book about Russia and its people, and a collection of letters from his father during the war in Burma. Now, Marcus, you started life as a journalist in Europe during the Cold War. What drew you to a career in journalism, and in particular to working in Europe? Well, I, I um, graduated in French and German from London University. And uh, I was trying to think, what am I going to, going to do? And then it occurred to me that actually there was a training scheme being run by Reuters, the news agency. And so I thought, well, my languages could be useful there. And what attracted me uh, uh, applying to work there was the opportunity to get out of Britain, actually, because I'm born British, and, uh, but I also have some antecedents in from Germany, Belgium, and a little bit of Italian even. And so um, I was looking for the opportunity to get away from a rather grey uh, Britain. And uh, I knew at the time that these languages would be useful, in particular during the Cold War. This was the end of the 1960s, and Germany was at the heart of the Cold War. So I thought that my languages could, could be useful. So this is the period that we know of, of of John le Carre and all those spy novels set in set in the Cold War. So, um, could you just give us a flavour about what it was like being a journalist in in those parts of Europe? Well, I, I was at quite an early age. I was sent to uh, East Berlin, and at that time, I was the only Western correspondent actually living behind the wall. And um, the uh, block of flats, small block of flats where I lived, it was still pockmarked um, by bullets fired by the Red Army when they invaded Berlin at the end of the Second World War. Uh, nearby, there was a, a, a water tower which had been used as, by the Gestapo as a torture center during the war. Just down the road, there was a geometry with all the tombstones still smashed up since the Crystal Night pogrom of 1938. So it had atmosphere, pretty sinister though. 
But I had a certain sort of status in East Berlin as the only Western uh, journalist there. So that that uh, made it interesting, in particular, as this was a time when Willy Brandt was starting détente. Um, there started to be a rapprochement between the two Germanys. The four powers controlling Berlin reached uh, agreement on, on it. And so everything was developing. But what didn't develop was the wall. The people of East Berlin could still not go over to the other side. They couldn't go anywhere in the West, and they didn't like this at all. And so I'm picturing this young man um, and the very uh, early part of your career. How how did you get your stories? How did you um, know what to do? How did you report back? And of course, in those days, it was long before mobile phones and Wi-Fi. Um, could you, again, give us a flavor of what that was like? Quite a lot of the news was being generated in any case. If they came over and negotiated uh, from, from the West Germany, then I had to be there to, to report what, what went on. So actually, because we had a bureau in East Berlin, we had an advantage over the competition. Uh, when they did reach an agreement on a, on a key part of uh, their negotiations, um, they came out and said, we've agreed. And I was able to phone on a local East Berlin phone to my office and uh, send out a flash. And this was transmitted by various uh, telexes, relays, right through to London. And we had a, a big beat over the, the rest of the correspondents who were there still trying to get a telephone call through to the West, which took much longer. And were, were you at any time um, at risk or in danger as you were you know, transmitting these stories? Were there things that you uh, were not allowed to broadcast? There was no censorship, no. And um, so uh, we just did what we could. The main problem was that people were rather afraid to talk with us because it if, if they do this, the Stasi, the secret police, would know immediately. And they would immediately be called in and say, uh, well, do you want to lose your job? Or do you want your children to go to university? Because we're not so sure about that now if you're going to be talking with, with this character. So a lot of people would be afraid, but but not everybody. After one of these agreements, um, uh, I, I went out onto the street in the in a dark November night, spitting rain, and stopped people and asked them, what do you think about this agreement? And most of them just turned away and walked on. But one one person stopped and said to me, well, um, we've had all these agreements, and man can go to the moon this year, but I still can't go to West Berlin. Gosh, that's quite a powerful story. Um, and so when you did um, uh, these interviews and you had to then anonymize or, or not give their names, and then that was in your dispatch, what they said, but not who they were. In this case, yes, it certainly was, yes. And there was a lot of sort of reporting from anonymous uh, sources. But um it was it was not so not so there was certainly no censorship and one could report what one wanted. And actually I had quite a sort of privileged status because being uh, belonging to quite a prestigious news organization from the West and being the only the only representative uh, of a news organization in East Berlin, they treated it more or less as if this was a British recognition. And at that time, um, the East German regime was not diplomatically recognized by any any other states except for the the other communist states and some and some third world states. So they actually didn't make life very difficult for me. So 
Can you tell us about your background and your heritage and how that influenced your life and writing? Um, I was born and brought up in, in Britain um, after, after the Second World War. So I was a good British boy and read all the Biggles books and so on. And I went to a good English school and I was the head of school there. And I joined the combined cadet force. Well, we had to actually, but I rose up to sort of the highest rank. So I think I did my bit as a as a good sort of British um, uh, representative of Britain. But if you look at my background, uh, I'm seven sixteenth uh, English, one sixteenth Italian, and that's where the name Ferrar originally came from, and uh, one quarter German and one quarter Belgian. And on that Belgian side, in fact, these were. A family who lived in Brussels were well off, and they looked very much to France. So I have quite a lot of influences from various countries and various other peoples um, in Europe besides my British heritage. So as a young boy, and with your mixed European heritage, you were, as you describe, very English. And did you have many visits and connections with family uh, in Europe? I did, because first of all, my father was... uh, uh, a teacher of French, so he liked to take us on on summer holidays to France and tell us all about the culture and so on. Marvelous holidays they were. And then my mother, being German, she had fallen foul of the Nazis uh, before the war, and she'd been thrown out of her arts and crafts school because of that. So she left uh, Germany and married my father just before the Second World War. But when the war came to an end, she said, well, we've won. The Nazis have have lost. So now we resume family life, which meant going back to Germany to visit her relatives. And that was really, uh, I I think, looking back on it, it was quite a privilege that I could have that contact very early on. However, it soon became apparent that one of these relatives um, had actually been a Nazi himself. So that sort of begged the question, well, what is this nice cigar-smoking uh, rather pompous uncle, who's actually really kind to me and to, uh, kind to all of us, and is quite an interesting person otherwise. What is my attitude going to be towards him? And so, how did you process that? And how? What is your attitude uh, towards him? I found out more about why he joined the, the the Nazis. In fact, he was an X-ray specialist, and in the clinic where he worked, the head of the clinic was actually appointed, it was a Nazi official who was appointed the head of the clinic, not a doctor. And he summoned all the all the main doctors there and said, you all got to join a Nazi organization, choose which one you want, but you can do that. At that time, he had a wife and three small children. So if he had said, no, I refuse, he'd have lost his job immediately and he wouldn't have got another one. So how would he have fed his his family? When I talked with my cousins, they all said, our father was not really a Nazi. And I'm inclined to believe that. However, the fact is, he was a Nazi. He did become one. And so how how can I really sort of excuse this and say, well, I like to be together with somebody who was a Nazi? And that, I think, is a quandary. And I met other people who were not, who had been Nazis, even SS people, and who had repented afterwards. But you think, well, you were still an SS um, man, and the SS people were killing ruthlessly. So here I am sitting, having supper with you. Do I really want to do this? And on the whole, I decided yes, because 
I felt that the Germans had done their mea culpa, um, you know, especially from the 1970s onwards into the 1980s, the young people, the teachers, the, the prosecutors, and uh, the other intellectuals, the young intellectuals said, we can't go on pretending we didn't know. And they did admit it, and they admitted the full guilt for uh, what happened, what they did to the Jews and to other peoples uh, all over Europe and creating a, a world war. And there, in that respect, the Germans are really unique. And I think they deserved you know, that we should now put that uh, behind us too and see, well, if you said you're genuinely sorry, we should give you a chance, we should, a chance now and have a, have a rapprochement. Do you get a sense that in terms of Germany today in 2023, that that dark cloud, that shame, that mea culpa is still with them? Because I was aware that uh, recently in the news, Germany was being encouraged, chivied to send tanks to help the situation in Ukraine. And they have so far said no. And I wonder if that is a reluctance uh, with the kind of image of German tanks rolling across Europe that they do not want to do that for that reason. I think that this um, is a very apposite question because what happened was that uh, Germany became very pacifist uh, during the 1970s and 1980s. And they felt that we Germans should not be making war anymore. And that is, uh, and they felt that they should need to say sorry to the, um, to the right of the Poles, to the Czechs, to everybody who they invaded and really created mayhem and massacred people, uh, huge numbers in the, in these countries. And that's what people like Billy Brandt did and other, and his successors too. And also admitting this guilt for the, um, for the, for killing, murdering all these Jews too. Um, however, this now sort of re begins to rebound a bit against them. I think that Germans are still a bit too much in a panic that if we start doing changing, we will go back to being Nazis again. And I think that's all long past now. So now it is not really being very well seen by other people in Europe that Germany holds back from taking warlike actions against Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. Even though they recognize that this must be done, somehow they can't bring themselves to do it. And they get criticized justly, I think, for that. However, I think we should also think, do we really want to have a warlike Germany again, being strong in Europe? Do we really want that? Or isn't it better that they are more peaceful people, even if we have to put up with them not quite pulling their weight? It's very interesting hearing you speak about your personal history and world history and how they, the two strands, your personal family life, uh, has intertwined with what has been going on in Europe, um, particularly in the mid-20th century. So when you um, set off for Germany as a young reporter, was that uh, experience or, or that, that awareness uh, from your family history, did that inform how you performed your, your role as a journalist? No, I think I just had to um, had to deal with every story as, as they came up and, and do my best to understand it. And I feel that the mission of a journalist is basically to help other help the rest of the people understand the confusing world. And it's helping this understanding 
well, that's what I feel that I that I should try to do. And wherever I went, even though it had wasn't always in Germany or other or communist countries, I always felt that that's what I should try and do. I was also covering the Portuguese Revolution in the 1970s, which was extremely confused, mayhem and chaos every day, and everything was totally unexpected every day, which for a time which happened. And I felt that I should try and sort of sort all this out and say, what does all this mean today? And do my best. And I felt that's that was my mission. So having retired from journalism, you have now focused on book writing. Um, the main theme of your memoir, A Foot in Both Camps, is about your personal conflict of loyalties between your German and British roots. And what are some of the challenges and, and joys uh, in writing the book? It gave me a lot of opportunities to delve into the past of my family. So, so some of the German relatives have written their own little memoirs. I interviewed them. I went to the United States to interview one of my cousins who'd become a very successful um, medical specialist there. Uh, I could go around and 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 uh, travel around and see and talk with people. I talked with people in Berlin who had been former Nazis, those who'd gone through the communist period and so on. And uh, so I felt that this was a way of delving into what had really been going on. It gave me a bit of an excuse uh, to do that. So unlike your journalism, you were freer to explore um, things like motivation and the the kind of long, what these days we call the long read, um, a a bit more complexity and and the layers of the narratives uh, through through the, the personal stories of the people in your family. Yes, and I tried to learn lessons for my own life too. I mean, I think one of the lessons I've learned through uh, writing all these books is the value of peace. That's why I appreciated that the Germans really did try and make peace, even if today it seems they go to a bit too far. Um, I'm also chairman of the of the Dresden Trust, which was um, founded to for reconciliation between Britain and the city of Dresden, which the British completely destroyed the historical center in 1945. And so I see that that is part of the mission. And this, my predecessors in this trust, they raised large amounts of money to help rebuild the main church, which the British destroyed. And this was much appreciated in in the city of Dresden. So it's really turning around that you could, after war, you, you, you make peace. And I think, this is what uh, what we should value now, um, even in spite of the fact that there is a war going on in Ukraine, and we have to we have to fight that war. There's no doubt about it. But then I think about the people in Russia who came before Putin, people like Gorbachev, who said, "I'm going to make peace. I'm going to make peace with Western Europe, and I'm going to pull out the million uh, soldiers and tanks and planes which we have." all over Eastern Europe or Central and Eastern Europe. I'm going to pull them out so that we're no longer threatening you. And and this worked. And uh, so I think uh, we, we should always remember that there are the great peacemakers. And uh, this is these are the people who I admire as heroes, even Gorbachev, who had many faults, but I admire him for at least having a go at making at making peace. I think making peace, peace, not war, those are wonderful ideals. Um, but how do 
do you, within a family, you've spoken to um, people in your family who were ex-Nazis, ex-SS, how do you get past that sense of um, this is what you did uh, or they did? And and how do those people who've done that get past the sense of you know self-justification? Well, well, I you know I had to do it, or it was the right cause, or some other kind of way of justification that I'm right and and or wrong to accuse me of these terrible things, or I did terrible things, but they were the right thing at the time. And then in a wider context around war and conflict, uh, a kind of not being able to let go of things in the past. Well, you, your ancestors did this to my ancestors, and, and I'm going to hit you back, and 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 so on. And so, war conflict is perpetuated. How do how does one, as individuals and as families and within relationships, get past hurts and grievances? And similarly, uh, on on the world stage. Uh, how do we get past that? I think that there are times when you really need to fight wars and and, and conflict. And you know, I think of, of my mother after she was um, had moved to Britain, and in 1940 she was expecting my elder brother, and my father had been already called up into the British Army. He'd gone, you know, she didn't even know where he was. And at any moment then, she thought that Germans were going to invade, and she knew that because she was a, a marked person in Germany that they would come to get her and put her in a concentration camp sooner or later. So she kept a, an open pepper pot in her kitchen. And she said, I was going to throw this pepper into the eyes of the German soldiers when they came to get me. And I thought, well, that would have been a pretty futile gesture. But good for you. You were going to do it. So you've got to fight for these things. There's no, you cannot just sit back and say, peace, peace, peace. However, she also gave me the lesson that after war must come peace, and you need to make this peace. You need to get and talk with the people. And on the side of the German relatives, they were only too happy to have uh, to come together with us, because otherwise they felt everybody's going to blame us all the time. And here come some people from Britain, who we much admire, Britain, which we much admire, who are prepared to take us as human beings and not keep on saying, ah, oh, you shouldn't have done this and you shouldn't have done that. So after war must, must come peace. And that's that's what war is there for, that we can all live together peacefully and harmoniously in the end. Your next book, The Budapest House, tells true stories of Nazi genocide, Cold War, dictatorship, and the aftermath of communism. What drew you to these horrific and painful stories? And what was it like spending so much of your time and focus on the dark side of humanity? I got to know certain people who'd been through these dark sides. And this, the Budapest House was actually about the Hungarian um, uh, genocide of, of the Jews. 400,000 Hungarian Jews were sent off right at the end of the war to Auschwitz. And they were sent off uh, largely by Hungarians themselves. There were some German uh, occupiers there as well, helping to organize it. But it was largely done by the Hungarians themselves, who were very anti-Semitic at that time. And so I knew somebody, a friend of mine, um, who had whose uh, family had gone through all of this. And she was Jewish herself. And so it was a question of delving into what are the motivations um, of, of people. She herself ra felt rather guilty about being a Jew. And this had been sort of inculcated 
for reasons which other Jews went through too, who have been associated with the Holocaust, that you, you feel guilty that you've been so badly treated somehow. And then she went to a Catholic boarding school where they said, oh, yes, the Jews are really guilty for killing Jesus and, and, and things like that. However, what really is attracting me to these stories is the drama. You know, these are people who are having to live, her parents and her other relatives, they had to live through truly appalling times, and they made their lives as human beings and got through it. And I find, this is my, my journalist coming out again, this is a drama. When things are going really badly and there are horrible things happening, it's a great story, I'm sorry to say, but it's great in the sense that it's interesting. It grabs you, grabs the attention. And I was attracted to that, and I thought I can make something out of this. And I tried to do it as honestly as possible, but it was basically the drama that I was looking for. And when you're speaking to people about their stories, and you're then translating it from you know what they've told you uh, into a book, how do you deal with portraying the people that you've uh, you've interviewed as um, you know good or bad or bear the, the things that they might be ashamed of. Do they? Do you ask them to okay what you've said? Have people said, "Oh no, 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 don't don't put that in public. Um, that 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 reflects me on about in a bad light." Well, first of all, I think I had to gain their their um, confidence in me as being a, an honest person and somebody who was not going to exploit this uh, to their to their detriment, and. Um, Sooner or later, you know, you, you come to these delicate questions. And uh, I think I also had to feel, well, what would I have done in those situations? And I think what is really uh, interesting is people being put into moral quandaries. And that does happen. If you do this, it's wrong. If you do that, it's wrong. You can't sit on the fence. So what do you do? And I feel a lot of pity and compassion for people like that. But I'm interested to hear. How do they actually deal with this? Because I think we all have our moral quandaries. And uh, how we deal with them is what makes us good or not so good human beings. Yes, it's, it's quite easy for us. And we're very fortunate to live in this extended period of peace and where we are not generally uh, thrown into a situation where we have to make um, very stark moral choices. And it's so it's easy for us to sit back and judge, uh, to criticize. But when, and the, 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 the fantastic thing about good stories, well told, the dramatic ones, the difficult ones, the dark ones, is we are then put in the situation and we can empathize with the people in the story. If I was in this situation, what would I do? Could I do this? Should I do this? And, and in what conditions? And I might do it to save somebody I loved, but I wouldn't do it normally. And that is quite haunting and and scary because I think there is the dark side in all of us. Absolutely. We all have this, this dark side. And uh, if we are aware of it, then uh, we can uh, bring it all together so that we acknowledging we have a dark side, but also this desire to to do to do good too, is we then bring it bring it together and accept ourselves as we are, but try and do the best we can. I'm thinking of a particular book um, where there is a, a that is currently selling millions of copies spare, where we're hearing one side of the story. And uh, Harry obviously has experienced a lot of pain in in his life. 
but is it appropriate to put it out there to uh, accuse? Um, I've not read the book, but I've heard it said that, oh, uh, he says it's everybody's fault but his own. And to, to go back to stories of people who've done dark things, how do you deal with, you know, do you self-justify? Uh, do you use the book, the opportunity of being published, um, or to tell your story to someone as a way of self-justification? Or is it sort of more like the truth and reconciliation aspect um, of telling something in public? Well, I think everybody has a, a right to write an autobiography and to write it in the best way that they think and to choose how they're going to do it. So we, if uh, Harry has written Spare, and we don't like everything which is in it, I haven't read it myself, but I've written a number of reviews, some of which go into it in some detail. Um, if we don't like certain aspects of it, too bad. Everybody has a right to do it. As long as you're not libeling or really sort of uh, being, being sort of attacking people, putting them in physical danger and so on, you have a right to do it. And I think that we just have to to deal with it. He has a right to put it out there, and we have a right to 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 think what what uh, what to make of it. And as usual, there's a bit of right here and a bit of wrong there. And you think, well, how do I bring all this together? What do I really think about it? And I'm not sure I really know yet. <laughs> so bringing your journalism training to the books that you write, and particularly uh, the personal stories, the family stories, the, the people that you spoke to for, for the Budapest House, uh, do you fact check? Do you, do you check for corroboration, that sort of thing? Or do you just take it as face value of what they've told you? No, I do a lot of um, a lot of research in so that I can get the facts right. I do vast amounts of research of, of the background, and it's not you know I'm not writing history. I'm really more uh, writing about the human stories. So um, when people are telling you something and justifying them th themselves um, in a way which you know is not considered right by by another whole section of, of the population. You have to be very careful to, to balance it. And of course, you can't just balance it equally and so on. You've got, at a certain time, you've got to make up your mind who is right and who is wrong. And nobody did this or did that. I mean, this came up to me, came to me when I was writing about um, uh, massacres in ex-Yugoslavia at the end of the Second World War. And this is specifically um, Slovenia. And even now, you find that those people who were on the side of the Catholics, who had been collaborating with the Germans because they wanted to keep the communists out, and those people who have more of a partisan communist background and so on, in this country, there's still a lot of antagonism between the two camps. And I wrote a book about that together with another British co-author and uh, who was an eyewitness of part of what went on. He's dead now. But... Um, and we had to be very careful that we took a balanced view, but made the judgments which were which needed to be made. So it takes a certain courage as well as the as as a writer when you're looking at these situations and these stories uh, that you put yourself on the line, I suppose, by making a judgment. But it, but it is backed up with the facts as you see it. Yes, you asked me before. Do I go back and and ask for, um, the people who I've interviewed to um, to uh, um, cor correct or or prove of, of what of what I've written as a result of the interview? Well, I don't do that. Um, I'm a journalist, and if people are going to prepare to talk to me, 
then I'm going and I say I'm going to write about you, then I'm going to do that. I'm not sort of hiding hiding anything. If they specifically ask, well, I want to see what you've um, what you've written, um, then I I would do that. I would go I would go back to them, but I would put less value on their on what they say. It's particular if they started changing things and having having second thoughts. I'm thinking, well, I'm playing fair with you, but you're not really playing fair with me. You're trying to think, how can I look good? And I'm not there in the business of making you look good. I just want to know what's going on. In fact, this hard has hardly ever happened to me, practically never. So your most recent book, The Fight for Freedom, is about great leaders through history who have fought for human freedom. So looking at the sort of brighter, more hopeful side of humanity. Can you tell us briefly about the book? And uh, then we can talk about what freedoms do you think still need to be fought for today? Well, this was a book which for once was... um, Actually commissioned, and the publisher said, "I want you to write um, a book celebrating the fight for freedom." And so I, I, I got into that, and then fairly soon I realised that not everybody fighting for freedom is doing it for a good reason. I mean, a lot of people, libertarian, right-wing libertarian people, who just want to do everything that that they don't want to have any rules, uh, rules um, restraining them. Criminals too, you know, they want to be free to knock old ladies on on the head and steal their handbags and worse. So um, it's a two-edged sword. And I, I realized as I was doing more and more research into this, that you can't always say fighting for freedom is good. And uh, sometimes it's not. Um, but I, I ch- chose the people who I most admired, who had, um, ha- had uh, in some way um, fought for freedom and put it to good use. People like Nelson Mandela, who, when he became free from the, his white apartheid uh, imprisonment, he he then steered his nation into peacefully reconciling more or less between whites and blacks well enough to hold a truly democratic election and hold it in a regular way, and then to govern his country more or less wisely for for a number of years. And that's I somebody who has put it to good use. I also think Martin Luther King is another one of those heroes. Uh, Gandhi as well, um, and there are the, these people who have put the, fighting for freedom to a, a good cause, and those are the ones who um, I really think we we should celebrate. Onto the side of those people who said, "Ah, oh, but if everybody has freedom, then what about our security? If you have too much security, it's stultifying." And it's restricting you. You, uh, it, it's it's uh, damaging the whole uh, human spirit. So I tend to I what I perceive is that people have been fighting for freedom over two thousand years and more, and gradually they get more and more freedom for better and for worse. Um, sometimes the freedom goes a bit too far, like with social media. Sometimes, but social media can also be have a very good side too. And there is always a conflict between those people who want security and those people who want more freedom. And we can't eliminate that conflict. There's always going to be this going on. And we have at each stage, we have to make our, make our own judgments. But what I do observe is that the world is much freer now than it used to be. Therefore, um, that means that fighting for freedom is basically a, 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 an admirable urge in the human makeup. 
And in terms of today's freedoms, you touched on on social media. That's been very free, and there's a, a push towards regulating it, um, which is, I think, it's a two two layer thing. Which is first, how do you, what kind of laws do you write? Uh, to regulate it, and secondly, how do you enforce it? Because that—that's the two aspects. And I come from it um, as as my with my training as a lawyer. That it's all—it's it, quite easy to have a big general principle. Then once you start writing things down, it becomes so black and white that you've got to keep redefining and redefining, and it comes then down to an interpretation. Unless you absolutely try and define. What the parameters are, and the more words you use, the more sub-definitions you need to use. So, um, what do you think? First, are there any freedoms that we need to fight for? And then, how? Who is the who is the judge of what that should be and how it should be written into law? Well, I'm afraid my opinion is that for you as a lawyer, this is a hopeless task to ever ever really codify this and regulate it. People will always go overboard and use using their freedom and saying things which they shouldn't be saying. This is also part of part of human nature. So we have to play it play it by ear and do the best we can and modify it this way and that way. And it and I think it's unlikely to be done by by lawyers. I don't think these are really legal questions mainly, though the law will come into it every now and then. They're moral questions. And we all have to think in our hearts what is the right thing to do and try and steer it in the right way. And we won't ever get it completely right, but there is more of this freedom of, of um, speech going on, and we can't we can't stop it uh, except when in in certain sort of clearly defined uh, um, areas where it's obviously evil. But it's going to go on, and there's always going to be this question, is it right to be as free as that or not? I think we've got to live with that as human beings. So are you working on any uh, new project at the moment? Good question, yes. On the 23rd of February 2022, uh, I and the journalist, a Russian journalist living in Russia, had a book almost ready to, to publish about Russians, uh, what motivates them, how they, how they lead their lives. And uh, um, their families, their businesses, and uh, their free time, and their art, their artistic expressions, and so on. And this book was almost ready to go. And on the twenty fourth of February, it became immediately uh, out of date, and it's been out of date ever since then. So I talk about this as my forthcoming book about um, about Russia and Russians. But I think it's going to be forthcoming for 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 some time because uh, too, too much is, too much is going on. And things have radically changed. Um, Russians could live reasonably well even under Putin until that invasion. Not anymore. It's it's really become much more of a of a dictatorship, an aggressive warlike nation, including ordinary people. You know they like being warlike now, and this is going to rebound on the Russians in the same way as the Germans were treated like pariahs for thirty years after the Second World War. I don't know whether this is going to go on for so long with the Russians, but people are not going to say, I want to be dealing with you Russians, because we know, we sense how you've been supporting, so many of you who have been supporting this brutal invasion of, of another country and this brutality of it, the killing, the statism, don't have anything to say about it. And I think this is going to really rebound on them for a long time in the future. It's, it's a country and a people with a very poor 
um, future in front of them, and it's what they've done. So at the moment in the West, we hear a lot about the conditions of uh, the people of Ukraine enduring the bombardments and, and all everything that you, you described in terms of the invasion. Um, but we hear very little about the ordinary Russian person. And you've, you've touched on that. And I think what strikes me is one of the themes of, of your writing life and your curiosity and your uh, work as a journalist and writer, which is to look at um, the different sides, the different stories. Could you just talk a bit more about um, how you're um, getting the news and information, uh, presumably from your with your Russian colleague, around um, how the invasion and the war uh, is affecting ordinary Russians at the moment? Yes, he's very much in in touch with with all of this, and um, he tells me that um, most of the Russians, and in fact, in my visits to Russia, I've seen this too. They really don't care. It's uh, a lot of apathy uh, about any questions of my own life, uh, what the nation should be doing, what my president apathy. They don't care. And the regime has been infantilizing these people for so long that they've got no experience anymore of standing up for themselves and saying, I stand for this and it's not what I don't agree with what, um, what the, what the regime is doing. Um, also, uh, one has to remember that there is a large um, a portion of Russians, well, not a large, I would say a large minority of Russians with whom we and in the rest of Europe can deal with absolutely on the same terms. Very European orientated, well-informed, well-traveled, at least until this war started. And uh, so these people are there. And under Gorbachev, they came to, they came to the fore and suddenly you could go there. I went there in 19, in 1988, and when Gorbachev was in power, and suddenly you could talk with all these Russian officials, and they were treated as like long lost friends. There is that possible rapprochement between an elite as, uh, uh, of, of Russians who live mainly in the large cities and the rest of us in Europe. And maybe that will come back in the end. But in the meantime, many of them are having to leave Russia, you know, for fear their children will get mobilized or they will get mobilized and sent, sent to the war. Or because they're, uh, they're, they've spoken out and said something, and then they get warned and said, you could go to prison for 15 years if you, if you keep on like that. There's a, it's, it's dangerous for the honest, liberal uh, minded people living in Russia at the moment. They're, they're in danger. And that's why so many of them have been leaving. Well, thank you for that insight. That's really interesting. Again, because we don't get that from the news. It's very focused on, on what's happening in, in Ukraine. We're coming to the end of our time together. Um, and I was just reflecting on, you know, everything that you've told me. And my sense is that your personal story, your personal family story, and you had drove your interest in uh, working in Europe at a very, very um, critical and exciting time in the middle of the 20th century. And what I have heard from you talking with you now is this sense that there is darkness and light uh, in everyone, and that there isn't a very simple, this is a baddie, this is a goodie. There are people who do things for different reasons, uh, good things and bad things. And you that you seem to have dedicated your life uh, to telling these stories that are epic and also very, very personal. Um, what advice do you have for anyone who may be curious about their personal heritage, and in particular, those who may want to write down their family stories? 
I would encourage them to to think of, of, of really doing that. But the key to it is you have to think, what is the grain of sand which is itching me to make me want to do this? What am I, what is it hurting a little bit? Why am I, what's niggling me that I've got to, got to, got to bring, bring out? If you don't have that, it could be, have no, no particular point to it, this story. Um, and sometimes people say, well, I, you should write it for your family. But my experience is your families are not going to read books like that. <laughs> They've got to also think, what is the whole point of this? And they won't do it and say, oh, grandpa says, you know, he was there and did this and that. They won't. So anybody who's writing some sort of memoir, what is a grain of sand which is making you itch to write this? My creative conversation today was with Marcus Ferrer. There are photos and links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page. Go to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and click through to Creative Conversations. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Creative Conversations podcast and would like to help more people find the show, please tell your friends about it, subscribe or follow the show, or leave a lovely review or rating via your pod listening app. All this will help nudge the show up the podcast charts. Creative Conversations, Bold Creativity, Smart Action is part of tigerspirit.co.uk. You can find the podcast by going to tigerspirit.co.uk forward slash blog and then clicking through to Creative Conversations. I'm Yang Mei Ui. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as at tigerspirituk. Or you can simply Google the podcast, Creative Conversations, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.